gave indications that that uh, there was some minimal wastage, but the but but as the Ukrainian as, as the weapon was made more widely available and and it was put into more effect, I think they learned really quite quickly. And the other aspect of this is as they begin to use more and more NATO equipment generally javelins and and the rest, they will they have. Um, become uh, more aware and more integrated into the system use. So I, I, I think that problem um, uh, is, is and has disappearing and it, it, we, we shouldn't let any of that um, deter us from getting weapons over to uh, Ukraine as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think we've dispatched this already and dispelled this as a false narrative in the past. By the way, one of our regular listeners and a friend of the program, most of you know him, has sent me separately uh, an image of um, his partner, and she's a combat medic in the area with um, a javelin mounted on her shoulder to learn how to shoot it. And she has shot it in combat, despite the fact that she's a medic. So let's just leave it at that. Hey, so going back to Akbar's comment about the Wagner Group and this image that come out, um, one of the things that I have to be aware of when I when I do my postings, whenever I write anything, is audience. And Wagner Group is very much aware of who their audience is. I don't think pictures like them with an accordion and a sledgehammer is supporters. It is much probably aimed at partisan fighters and opposition members and Ukrainians in general inside of Kherson itself saying, hey, sit down, shut up, or we're coming for you. Um, I think audience is really important when you look at that picture. I, I, I agree completely, River. It's, 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 a, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's a sort of a shot across the bows. Um, you know, remember what we did before, remember what we could do now. And, and I mean, what, what they're already doing in Ukraine, right? That's, that's, that's very real. Um, these we already know they're operating these torture center, centers um, and the likes, um, torturing civilians of all ages and sexes. Um, this this is uh, it, it's an ongoing thing. Um, but but I, I wouldn't underestimate that the you, you I mean the 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 name of that particular channel is visible in the image anyway. Uh, and you have to look at the number of supporters that they have and the comments and uh, the other channels that repost their materials and their sort of quote memes uh, with these images of sledgehammers and other dog whistles. Um, this is, they are a well, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's be generous and call them infamous, infamous but they're a well-known and well-supported group um, amongst Russia and, supported, uh, and its supporters as well. Thanks, Artoir. Um, yeah. Axel had to step back for just a second here. Uh, Rafe, like sorry, Rafe, did you want to respond? Yeah, I had a follow-up. Oh, Artoir, I absolutely agree that they'll use... Uh, whatever they have to, to to fluff their and pad their supporters back in Russia to help with recruitment and public support and all that. But I think that uh, the primary audience is going to be Ukrainians, and I think whenever Kherson is liberated, we're going to see uh, their handiwork once again in horrible ways. And it's too bad I couldn't snap my fingers and instantly weld all the manhole covers to the well shut. Thanks, Raver. Uh, and I just wanted to add one one caveat and one point to the to the conversation I had earlier. Um, if if someone's training and uses a, a training munition or or a live munition, uh, we we never call it wastage, right? Whether the the munition's expiring or or whether it's a training environment, um, we we still wouldn't identify that as wastage. So 
if we were uh, you know, criticizing early on some of the usage of whether it's javelin or other things, uh, the javelin, to my knowledge, doesn't have a training round. So you, you, know, you have the software environment or you have a live fire, an expiring one. Um, but early on in the war, we, we shouldn't unfairly criticize when there was no training environment for them to have. Their training environment, their practice environment was a live fire. Um, and we wouldn't call it wastage in the training environment. So we, we should be careful about labeling it as as wastage, especially early on when they were learning the weapon system. Um, you know, if there was a, a training munition round available for already, if CJ speaks to it, you know, of course, you know, what what's occurring in training in Poland and elsewhere, um, we don't call that wastage. We don't look at the rounds expired, whether it's training munition or or real round and say, hey, that's wastage. We, we know it's part and parcel of training and learning up on a weapon system and that's an associated cost that goes with it and, and as far as the javelin's concerned you know they bypass that a little bit with software so uh to you stan yeah that's what i was getting at is that early on there's just there's going to be some um uh there's going to be some some munitions that aren't that are, that are used for training rather than uh, than calling a wastage the other thing that i wanted to bring up was um, and I was w- wishing James was here to to, to speak on this. Is uh, that we uh, uh, one of the things that I've seen, especially on social media, that's been been so effective is whenever we whenever we get a chance to post something, and and the Walter Report does this quite often. And I love it uh, when we get a chance to post something uh, with that that demonstrates the success. You know, a tank blowing up, or or a plane shot down, or or you know a, a a a clear win on a battle that information gets spread very very rapidly, um, and and it does breed a certain. I wish it was shown on on mainstream media in the West more than it more than it is. Well, it's not shown at all really, uh, uh, and and I wish that it would be shown because that 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 success breeds uh, a, a, a a certain level of of enthusiasm in 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 providing will pr- provide enthusiasm that will provide Ukraine with more weapons and and uh, quick more quick quicker anyway thank thanks Stan Phil thanks Gurney um, I just wanted to make a comment about a previous conversation um, the I agree that uh, and I'm I'm not one for you know how I want Ukraine to get as much equipment as possible as quickly as possible to help you know get rid of the invading forces off their land but the the US infrastructure is pretty strained um particularly the the um airlines industries um I have a friend who's an air traffic controller and basically their force he's on the east coast and they're working 60 hour work weeks and they're trying to extend that even further because of all the flights that are going on commercial and military and organizing all of that. And it, there is a lot of stress on that capacity. My, I, just a quick question, like, we do have a lot of, you know, um, shipping capacity as well. And I heard that you know, there's going to be some ships um, taking a lot more. Just a quick mic check. I think we might have lost Phil. Phil, if you can, uh, if you can hear me, just uh, go ahead and drop down. Yep, and send a request back up. We'll get you pulled right back up. Just dropped in the middle of your question, Phil. No worries. While we're waiting for Phil, finance. Yeah, I just wanted to respond a bit to what he said as far as capacity strength constraints here in the U.S. Um, 
in some ways, yes, there's always capacity constraints of the nature of modern industry. On the other hand, we have a really distinct ability to scale up. Uh, we can hire more people. Uh, we still are nowhere near labor force participation from 2000, let alone labor force participation, which was much lower than 2007. That's really fancy ways of saying that uh, in really, really broad terms, there's lots and lots of Americans that if you want to hire them, do high paying jobs like air traffic controller, we can find the people, train them, hire them, do these kinds of things. Uh, as has been discussed in the space, absolutely ships are a better way to transport huge amounts of stuff as opposed to planes. We actually had a Navy man the one time it was brought up in the uh, listeners who came up and told us all about how that would happen. Turned out he was a naval logistics uh, a former career naval logistics person, and he was incredibly helpful. Um, absolutely, that is something that is going on, and we would expect it to be large amounts of stuff, obviously, on a ship. There's only so much uh, an airplane can pack. So, yes, switching from airplanes to shipping, at least for certain bulk deliveries, would be a nice change. But I don't think that capacity constraints here in the U.S., especially when you're talking about workers and industrial workers, is what is slowing down our ability to ship stuff over. Uh, we, we may have some. Thank you. Fine. It won't be, it won't be from, for work. Thank you, finance. Yeah, no, I didn't get to f actually finish my question, um, but I, I thank you and I appreciate it and I agree. I, I, the two things I was going to say was we did have to prioritize what we were shipping. Um, you know, because the shipments were limited and we won't have to do that with ship shipments. Um, and the second point was, um, you know, it was just announced today that some infantry fighting vehicles from uh, France, you know, an unknown number were going to be shipped. And, you know, I think just Macron and Schultz more recently have shown, um, you know, a, a more willingness to, to support the fight. And that's just a much easier and shorter distance. And, you know, we do need other countries on the mainland of Europe to ship what they can as soon as possible. Because um, I think that is another big part of it, whether, you know, they get backfills from the U.S. or they just do it on their own. I think that's going to also be necessary because, you know, no matter how much we ship, us, the U.S., it's not going to be enough for what Ukraine needs to fight Russia, which is right next to their land and have all the infrastructure to bring their equipment over as well. And that was my those were my points. But I agree with you 100 percent finance. We do need to build our infrastructure up. And it does take time for, you know, hiring new air traffic controllers and, you know, getting them involved. So I agree. Thank you. And Phil, separate but related to your uh, comment there, I think you had mentioned uh, the the French um, fighting vehicles or the French APCs. I forget if they were infantry fighting vehicles or APCs, but either that's it's irrelevant on that. Um, but if you notice a trend with some of the timing, uh, when you get an announcement like that, and I know we got the announcement relatively close to yesterday or the day before, um, those things tend to have already been in motion. Clearly, they were obviously planned. Um, and clearly, there's usually a, a, a follow-on contingent, meaning a follow-on larger contingent of the vehicles. Um, but I would, uh, you know, just to add to your point, uh, I've already seen video of prime movers in a convoy in a very close country 
to Ukraine already having those French vehicles um, on the back of the prime movers. And those prime movers were in a convoy. So I, I, won't, I won't say the, the name of the country or how many of them, but it was definitely a convoy and they were definitely en route. Uh, and that was at least within six or eight hours of the actual announcement. Um, so, you know, just just for enlightenment out there, um, whenever we get some of those, hopefully uh, they're halfway en route or are en route uh, or have been trained upon. And hopefully there's a larger follow on contingent of the of the assets being moved. But I thought I'd mention that because when people talk about, you know, hey, they're getting these. Um, well, I don't know the total amount that they're getting, but I can say, hey, I've seen them very close uh, to the Ukraine borders um, already on the back of prime movers. So anyways, uh, with that, we got June up here. Uh, finance, if you want to respond to that. Uh, and then we also have Constantine who joined us. And, and Gurney, they were VAB APCs. You are correct. Thank you. And in, different, you. Ver- and in different verse. Okay. Uh, June, to you. Say so, so. You know, speaking of these these inter- these APCs and these IF IFVs, uh, you know, that's I think that's going to really be important because you know I don't think they've lost a lot. Ukraine's lost a lot. I mean, I know Russia's lost a lot, but Ukraine had a, lost you know fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred of these things. And any kind of uh, you know counteroffensive with any sort of maneuvers, we're going to acquire a lot of those. And so those are going to be uh, critical. That's just kind of a statement. And one other thing, I, I really appreciate Raver's insights a lot, but he brought up the whole window, the operational window, you know, will essentially get back to the mud phase. And I think he said October, and if he would like to elaborate on that, um, that's fine. And, and then it's going to be cold up there. I mean, I, I've never been there, but it looks pretty darn cold. And so, you know, <laughs> I don't know how a soldier lives out there for the whole winter, but, you know, that, you know, they got to be thinking about propane heaters and sleeping bags too. I mean, there's, there's all kind. this war, you know, this is anyway, th- there's a lot going on here, but Raver talk about that mud and how that, you know, cause these infantry fighting vehicles and APCs, if they're on the way now, they may arrive just in time for the rain. June. Um, so, so the, IFVs, the IFVs have reached Ukraine today. But I mean, in size where you could have, you know, ma- you know, really, you know, significant maneuver. I don't know, but I, I think, you know, it's not in dozens or fifties or a hundred. It's, it's gotta be over. It's gotta be over 500 or a thousand. I would think, I mean, you can't have a three or 400,000 person army and have 500 infantry fighting vehicles. You just can't. Matt doesn't work. We walk. No, they do have, they do have their old Soviet IFEs, which are completely utterly useless from my perspective. And you and I would never go into these uh, death boxes, but they of course need better material, better kit in that regard. They should have the martyrs from Germany, uh, but also, uh, the VABs, which have actually come about now from um, France. So in that regard, by the way, we're lucky we've just been joined by Ryan O'Leary. Yes. Ryan, can you hear us? Ryan, if you hear us, uh, the bottom left. My mic was off. My okay, mind. no. Oh, cool. How are you today, sir? Oh, not too bad. Getting some meetings done and trying not to get hit by ballistic missiles or whatever they've been shooting. Yeah, not very precise, but uh, very, very torturous when they arrive. So how are things on, on site? Uh, pretty good. <clears throat> so I'm, update. I'm not on the front in the east anymore at the moment. I'm actually further back. I'm heading to a new location again for some other stuff. But, I, mean, I don't know. That's what it is. <laughs> um, that's probably not a good answer. Um, <clears throat> lots of artillery. Um, I missed what you guys were talking about earlier, so I don't know if there's questions they're asked, but... I mean, the front's pretty brutal still. You know, it's uh, nonstop artillery with probing attacks with, you know, <clears throat> not really, I wouldn't say company size, almost maybe like a platoon or less. 
uh, and they just keep hitting. They'll launch artillery, uh, move vehicles and troops up. They get hit. Then they just keep doing it over and over. Uh, can you give our community a little update as to generally the direction where you've been? Um, so I got into Ukraine end of February. I fought at the Battle of Moshun. And then I fought in Irpin, Bucha. Um, I fought down in the Zaporizhia region for a little bit, hunting tanks. Um, for a while, I was way up north near the Chernobyl area at the start of the war, too, with uh, Eros Radvidka. Um, and then just the east now, and then I'll be going up, uh, back up north, actually, so northeast. All right. Well, we, we shall hope that the northeast will become a successful attack vector in, in short. How did the tank hunting go in the Saporizhia region? <laughs> Depending on the day, good. Uh, we found out that the uh, Ukrainian buildings don't take tank rounds too well, but, I mean, it was good. We got, I think Arina got like four or five kills, and then the Ukrainians that we taught got three, and that was probably in like a week and a half time. So it's just a lot of open areas. Um and, you know, the only strategy in the south is basically follow the tree lines. They're basically like picture two trees next to each other for like a half mile or, you know, like a kilometer. So you just got to walk, get down the tree lines without being seen, hit them, and then get out without getting hit by helicopters and artillery. So, I mean, it's productive, but it's dangerous. <clears throat> but these were all light infantry movements, essentially, on the Ukrainian and Euro side, right? Yeah, so the guys I'm with, we move in two-man or four-man squads, typically, just so we don't get seen, or fire teams, if you want to call it that. Yeah. That uh, sounds about right. Now, in the northeast, there are a couple of targets, obviously, which are extremely important in order to cut through the supply lines. How do you see uh, the next weeks unfolding? What, or how far do you think you can look forward? Um, I can't really go into what I'm doing up there, but I haven't. I haven't been to the northeast near Kharkiv and those areas yet, like the Oblast, so I don't really know what to expect. Um, I'm going to assume more artillery. <laughs> But uh, hopefully we can do some attacks that'll catch them off off uh, off their mark a little bit. Um, I mean, I know we can. It's just a matter of doing it without getting killed in the process. But um, I don't I don't know what to expect up there. I haven't met any of the commanders or anything up there, so I really don't know what the game plan is yet. I just basically got told, "Hey, you're moving units. Get get your stuff ready." So, well, that's how it typically goes. Someone says move, and you move. Pretty much. <clears throat> we have another. Um... Canadian with us, battle move. Hey, Ryan, how's it doing, brother? Hey, not too bad. Uh, I was just wondering if you can comment, like, uh, when, when you're engaging with the Russians, like, uh, in terms of effective fire, like, how effective are they? Or are they just fucking shooting into the wind there? Um, so, so typically, so my unit doesn't really sit in trenches. The unit that I was with previously for most of this war, we weren't really trench fighting. Um, in the east, we got within five meters of Russian forces before we started unloading on each other. So, I mean, it's pretty, we do pretty close engagement stuff. Um, they typically, if we catch them off guard, they pretty much just spray everywhere. Uh, when it comes to their heavy artillery, they try to hit the trenches where we're at. Um, so what, what they do really good, and this is going to sound bad, but what, what the Russians do really well is what they'll do is a probing attack, wait for the frontline uh, defenses to open fire, and then they basically drop. They use the they use the probing attack for like a scout element for recon. So once they figure out where we're at, then they start dropping artillery right on top of us. 
Um, yeah, they're they're illuminating the the trenches essentially. Yeah, basically. I mean, they're they're losing two, three vehicles and a bunch of guys doing it. But yeah, that's basically what they're doing. Um, as far as like uh, small arms contact, I actually just posted a video on my Twitter from Ur, the battle on Irpin. Um, my dumbass unit decided to take twelve guys and assault a Russian HQ in Irpin, and we all lived through it. So they're not that good at small arms contact. <laughs> Luckily, I mean, that's, I mean, a, that's, that's what we're, so. yeah, that's what we're hearing uh, time and time again with uh, with everybody coming from the front is the uh, the Russians don't like to get close with and, and engage. No, you know, they, they like that standoff engagement. Uh, you know, let the artillery do all the work. They don't they don't like to get uh, they don't like hugging. Yeah. Yeah. They're not they're not good at violence of action and, and uh, you know, sub 400 meter combat. Um, they're, they don't have the command and control within their own units to do it. Like, there's not, they have a command structure like your NCOs, your team leaders, and all that, but it just turns into a hot mess for them when they get too close. Yeah. So, you don't, you don't have, uh, like the individual in the trench. I, I don't know if you speak Russian or whatnot, but can you hear them yelling, uh, calling grits or grease? No, I mean, usually when we hear them yelling, they're screaming. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, like I said, I don't sit in trenches. We do some other stuff. So uh, usually they're not communicating by the time it's over. But um, uh, when we're in Mushroom, you can definitely hear them yelling at each other. But, I mean, at, at the end of the day, they just, they just don't they don't keep, like, a cohesion within their units usually. Um, at least for the units that we ran into. So, like, we ran into VDV uh, a few times, too. They're a little bit better on their movements and their contact, but they're still not – it still breaks down over sustained fire. Uh, the longer that they're in – like a close engagement the worse it gets for them so typically they'll break it real quick um if unless they have armor um but i mean once that armor's gone they pretty much try to leave real quick yeah ryan hey so i was wondering so could you walk us back a step you mentioned uh in the east and again if if you can't mention anything you know feel free to drop it um but just wondering you know the the some of the listeners don't always get that that discrete tangible experience that that you can provide here in terms of detail um could you walk us through you're mentioning uh in the east uh and sort of recon by fire from some of their some from some of the russian troops could you walk us through uh a night a day like what time it is you operated and then you'd mentioned you know you'd gotten within five meters of each other but could you walk us sort of through that yeah so and it's not just east this goes with pretty much everywhere except when we were down doing tank hunting um obviously uh we never got close enough to tanks i think closest for tanks was maybe like 600 meters i mean it's close but um basically what the russians will do uh they usually don't do it at night uh they rarely do like full troop movements at night uh for obvious reasons for them uh but basically what they'll do is they'll send you know maybe a bmp in a tank or two bmps forward with either some infantry in the rear or a few at the front for scout for eight, uh, like anti-tank mines. And basically what they wait for is they wait for us to shoot at them, and then they radio back our position so the artillery can get more effective on us. Um, the Ukrainians counter it as much as they can, but at the end of the day, it's, it, it happens. Um, as that's for like the trench stuff goes. Uh, so my unit is more of the unconventional hit-and-run type people. Um, and like to put into a better picture, like most people's bat, like if you walk into your bathroom from one one from your front door, of your bathroom to your back wall, unless you have like a really big house, that's uh, as close as we've gotten in some engagements. Um, we've gotten in a few where you could probably reach out and have grabbed the person, but instead they just got blasted. So um, we do a lot of 
really close ambushes and stuff. So yeah, so that's that's very interesting. So let me just I'm just going to keep pulling you back here. Um, so when you had say that BMP, um, and they're so it does sound like they're they're doing re- recon by by fire essentially. They're waiting for you guys to open up. Is it is it com is it most common that they're doing it with vehicle? Do they do it with dismounts only, or or is it combined vehicle? It's, and, it's- uh, it's typically combined, um, and that really hasn't changed along any of the fronts. The problem is, is so like it'd be good just to tell the Ukrainians not to shoot at it, but you can't let a BMP with a 30-millimeter cannon on the front get close enough to start hitting the backside of your trench. So at some point, you have to do, you know, you have to fire back. Um, but, yeah, they're basically doing recon by fire. And then once we start engaging, they will then start dropping artillery, uh, the only counter to their artillery fire is to move along the trench lines, but you can't do that if you're currently actively engaging too easy. So it's like a catch-22 for both sides. Uh, you know, they might lose two or three vehicles, whether it's a tank and a BMP or a BTR and a BMP, but then they'll also lose, you know, the dismounts that are with it. Um, they've, they've found out over time if they don't have dismounts with their vehicles, the anti-tank mines that we've planted in the road will usually hit their vehicles. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's probing by fire. It's, it's hard to explain next time I'm out there. I'll try to film it, but well, uh, don't, don't worry about us back here. Don't worry about filming it for us. But, uh, so, so keep going back to that, say the BMP, are they, when they, when they either force contact from, from you guys or whichever comes first, whether it's them or by you, um, are there BMPs, are, are they disengaging at that point? So the already can come in, are they staying there danger close? What, what sort of movements are they doing? So a lot, a lot of times once that BMP, once we open up fire on them and they open up on us, um, they typically don't keep pushing forward. Uh, they typically just hold, um, usually until they get schwacked like the BMP does. Otherwise, they will disengage depending what's shot at them. Um, the artillery on the Ukrainian side is getting better for that. Um, they are starting to try to call in artillery uh, instead of having the guys in the trench shoot. The problem is we don't have enough artillery to cover all the avenues of approach in certain areas. So a lot of times it goes back to a guy in the trench with a javelin or an N-law um, to react to it. Uh, some switchblade 600s would be nice for that scenario, but I mean, because they know where the trench works are, but they don't know where we are every minute of the day in the trench. So, but yeah, it's it's it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to defeat because if you let them get too close, then you're going to be in a little bit. I mean, they're not going to close within 100 meters probably, but if you let them get too close, it's just a lot bigger risk when you have an armor, you know, with either a cannon, like a tank cannon or a 30 millimeter shooting at you. So. Yeah. And and when you mentioned so so no closer than say a hundred meters to the trench, I mean is what you guys are comfortable with letting them get. But but for instance here, are they calling Artie on the on themselves? Uh or are they calling Artie further back uh behind your trench line? Where where does the Artie generally so, tend to land? So typically that? so typically they like they know where our trench lines are. Um, you know, they they use drones, they see the trenches, but again, they don't have drones up twenty four seven and they also can't realistically see where we are in the trenches all the time so what they typically do is they'll try to soften it up with artillery while they're moving forward once we engage uh typically the guys on the ground or if they throw a drone up at the same time to watch then they'll start redirecting the artillery but yeah they won't get in close while they're shooting their own artillery they don't call it on top of themselves they try not to i would assume but um, I'm sure it happens, but I have yet to see it that way. <clears throat> Great. I thought I heard uh, Moose back there speaking, but I'm not sure if that was him. No, Moose. no, that wasn't me. 
Okay. Um, so, so Ryan, so switching it up a little bit off the, uh, so, so that um, for the audience out there, you know, Ryan's talking about some, some static positions, some fortified positions. So uh, without revealing details, I know you mentioned your, your other line of preferred work, not being uh, trench work um, and therefore being a little bit different. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Cause you had mentioned, you know, your preferred route is not to open up fire unless you have to, to give away your position uh, if you guys are doing other other objectives could, could you speak to that or or if we need to steer clear of that we'll steer clear no i mean it's pretty pretty open what we do so um i actually build bombs uh funny enough <laughs> but um this is funny because we I, I was u.s military we used to try to avoid building like we'd catch the bomb makers now i build bombs uh we do ambushes with them um <clears throat> typically one five two one five fives uh we just started making some stuff that some people in Iraq probably saw from 06 to 08, roughly 09. Um, but we try to get in close. Uh, predominantly, again, violence of action is where it's at. Uh, and once you get in close, it, it breaks them pretty easy and pretty quick. Uh, it's a huge risk, though, to get a bunch of guys up close, but it does happen still in certain areas. Um, and then when it comes to the city fighting the group I'm with is predominantly foreigners. They know what they're doing. Um, and it's, 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 it's pretty much game over. An, e an easy example is Moshun. Uh, from March 1st to March 6th, we held the northern salient of, or the northern line of Moshun there. Um, <clears throat> Twelve of us held off probably a company or maybe even larger unit <clears throat> for about five days sitting in one house just shooting at them. Um, and we would do operations at night, go find their HQ and smash them in their own building, uh, whether it's throw grenades to the window or just actually full-on assault the building itself. Um, but, yeah, my guys typically prefer to get in close. Um, we do have some guys that do more of the gas gun stuff, but, uh, sorry, the long-range rifle stuff, like sniper fire. But a lot of the guys are uh, more expertly inclined to do ambushes, get up close and personal. Basically... What we'll do is we'll set up an ambush, uh, L-shape, whatever shape we feel like, whatever whatever the train dictates. Wait for them to get up in there and then just smash them, basically. Um, initiate with an explosion, rocket, um, you know, heavy machine gun, uh, squad automatic weapons. And just basically get a, let them get as close as possible. Because, again, the, the, the closeness is where they're bad at, so... That's that's wonderful to to hear in terms of this. And and so anyone listening out there, so Ryan's talking about, you know, setting up ambushes for these guys. Um Ryan, Ryan could you talk could you talk about your experience? Uh so so you you're with a group of people, not not to mention the size or, or who they are per se. Um did what was your background um and, and how do you add to the team? Are you adding them the experience here to to form some of the ambushes? Are you directing them like that? Are you a team member? Could you talk to a little bit about that side? Um, most of the guys in my team are well experienced above me. So actually I was, uh, 11 Bravo U S army, uh, 2004 to 2014, 2014. I actually went over to Iraqi Kurdistan. I worked with the Kurds a little bit in Syria, predominantly in Iraq, but, um, I learned all my explosive stuff with the Iranian Kurdish separatists, uh, for about three years I lived up in the candle and basically built bombs and was blowing up Iranians on the border. Um, the skills transferred over here. I basically do the explosives for the unit. Uh, well, explosives, rockets, mines. Um, so that's basically what I do. Um, I don't plan the operations. They just ask me for 
my thoughts on how to do the explosives and stuff basically um like i said there's other guys that are extremely well qualified in the ambush stuff uh, as well as the operation tempo and stuff like that so basically i just blow stuff up did you see the uh, dm22 of uh, the anti uh, directional anti-tank mine in uh, uh... the german ones yep I have seen them employed. I have yet to get my hands on one. Um, so I think a lot of those are actually going to the engineering units and some of the other units that are associated with the engineering units. A lot of the stuff that we may we use, we actually make. So um, we do more of the unconventional mines. <laughs> uh, we do have anti-tank mines and stuff like that, but we build on top of them. Okay, cool. Uh, what are the enhancements you're looking for? Uh, typically, we'll like double stack 155s. Uh, we use cell phone detonators, uh, infrared detonators. Uh, just make them more more punch to it and then different ways to set them off. Uh, predominantly because if they do have the people in front to go remove the landmine, we can set it off in their face. So um, it makes yeah, them a little bit more. It, it, eating snacks out there. Oh, yeah, you know it. Fucking out there cosplay. Actually, I'm not. You can look on my Twitter page or my Instagram, and there's plenty of other people on here can, that can verify it. But thanks. Don't worry, Ryan. We had a troll come up. I apologize. See me snug one snuck through. From time to time, that happens. You can Google my name too. So, Ryan, don't worry about it. We know. We know. Yeah, we we exterminated him with extreme prejudice. Alrighty, um, Ryan. A uh, couple of more things. Uh, when when you go on these missions, typically, do you actually uh, have to hide out there like our friendly snipers do and wait for them, or is it rather more that you go in, out, drop them, and re retreat to a firing position? Uh, if it's if it's typically in and out. Um, in the cities, we might hold a location for a little bit, but the problem is, you hold a location too long, they're going to drop a mortar on top of your artillery. So. Uh, typically it's in out, they do sniper hides, uh, which basically is just a place where the sniper can set, acquire targets without being seen. And could I add on to that, Ryan? Uh, so just in terms of these ambushes, is your unit, not to give away anything, is your unit self-directing these or are these part of objectives? Meaning, uh, you know, uh, something comes down to say, hey, uh, de deny this uh, bit of area here, deny this terrain or or look for this unit, et cetera. Could you talk to us in, in terms of the tasking or no, you can't talk to the tasking? Yeah, so I mean, the Ukrainians are in charge of all it. Basically, they'll come to us and say, hey, this is an area we want you to go do something in. We'll form the operational plan. And then we bring it to them. The Ukrainian commander looks at it, does whatever he does on the backside with the support elements. He either says yes or no. If he says no, it's usually because we don't have the proper um, we don't have the proper stuff all in place, or we don't have enough information for him to relay it. So I mean, we're not we're not autonomous. We do have Ukrainians with us. We have Ukrainian leadership. Uh, we do get approval for everything. Uh, anything that we place on the ground, we actually remove after the mission if we can. Otherwise, we mark it on a map, remove it later. So, I mean, there's nothing that's getting left. Um, there's no munitions that are getting left on the ground that can be dangerous for civilians trying to flee uh, or anything like that. So, uh, but yeah, everything everything goes through Ukrainian commander. We have Ukrainians with us on the ground on the missions. Um, so it's not, we're not wild, wild westing it here with no no ukrainian input or anything gotcha and so just to make sure i have i have clarity on that when when you guys are performing those missions it, most of the time you guys are performing an area denial role correct 
thank you. Okay, well, we got a few questions from down below. I know Artois has been waiting, and then Battle. Yeah, thanks, Gurney, and thanks, Ryan, for uh, for getting back to us so quick and, and joining us this evening. Um, it's, it's great to have you here. It's always awesome to hear from people actually on the ground um, and, and as involved as you. Uh, actually, I just wanted to forward um, a comment on a question from uh, one of our regular listeners, David Farrell, who's in the audience there. He's had some technical issues today, but um, uh, he, he had a comment basically to say that, uh, you know, everyone here in this space is, you know, we run 24-7 and uh, we're 100% behind yourself and, and everyone else um, that's fighting the good fight in Ukraine currently and uh, much love and keep up the good work. Um, I think that echoes the sentiment of, of everyone here, certainly. Um, but his question was, uh, you know, without getting anything too sensitive or anything that would breach OPSEC, um, you've been there since, as you said, late February. Um, sort of between now and then, have you seen any kind of interesting signs that the, the Russians are learning um, as this progresses? Obviously, you know, they, they got their asses kicked in Kiev, thanks to yourself and, and many others, Ukrainians and foreigners alike, um, and have moved to this kind of more artillery-centric um, fight in the east. But is, is there any sort of other insights where maybe you see them adapting um, or changing their tactics and stuff that you can maybe share with us? Yeah, I mean, it. it... Yes and no. Some units, it seems they've adapted better than others. Um, you still have units that will, and the, the, it, might, it might dictate on who their area operator is or who their you know main area commander is. But in some places, you'll see <clears throat> the armor not shove itself out past a tree line. Um, but then in other areas, they still do it. Uh, so I, I can't get into that too much. But basically, in some areas, their armor will make itself a target and in some areas that they're they're a little bit more cautious they're a little bit more inclined to uh take things a lot slower um and they they've just adapted to understand that just because they're in armor does not mean that they're they're invincible um they don't all, they don't do the drive a tank and have 12 guys run behind it type stuff anymore um as much like i said it it, it seems some areas they do it still and some areas they don't so there's definitely you can, you can definitely tell when a unit is different than your previous ones that you fought because of the way they act. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they are adapting tactics, and they are learning quick. Um, luckily, not quick enough to prevent a lot of a lot of them um, getting hurt and killed. But, um, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a change in how they're operating. But, again, it, it depends on what area you're in. In the south, they're still, they're still pretty, pretty shitty on what they operate and how they operate. But um, the eastern side is a lot more a lot more complex on their operation thanks ryan uh artois getting his, his mic working there while, while he's getting that uh, can i ask you there's a question from a listener uh are they using uh are, are they using illumination rounds you had mentioned illumination rounds from artillery before um are they using them and then b i'm going to add on here are you seeing any uh, uh phosphorus munitions are you seeing any uh, incendiary munitions um, so interesting about that up actually. So when we were fighting in Moshun and Irpin, they would actually shoot flares, not not like uh, mortars, but or artillery. But they'd actually they're actually using flares. They had green, white, and red. <clears throat> uh, green was, I believe, it's been a while since I've seen the flares used. So I haven't asked the Ukrainians lately. It was either green or red. Was that uh, okay? So I think red was. Um, they had issues, green was good, and then white was in contact, or it, was, it might be white was issues, red was in contact, but they were actually using flare guns in Moshin and Irpin. Um, I haven't seen the artillery loom rounds. Um, they are, I know they are using white phosphorus. They, I just talked with some guys where I'll be going. They got hit with some last week. They said bring a gas mask. 
I said it's not going to matter, <laughs> but <clears throat> they are. I don't think it's widespread, but they are using them. Ryan, I have a question for you. We spoke about javelins sometime earlier with you specifically. Have you had more like experience with that type of weapon and how effective they are? And also, like the additional question is, what's your assessment of Ukrainian units who are using that particular weapon? How good are they with that? And uh, overall, uh, regarding the anti-tank um, munitions and shoulder-fired munitions uh, that infantry has, if you had such experience, of course or witness um, units using those things. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I've actually never shot a javelin in combat. We actually have guys who are trained on it in their military careers. Um, we have one guy down here. Actually, he just went back to the States uh, with some head trauma, but he was doing most of the javelin shooting for us. We got a fill-in already for it. But um, the javelin's a game changer. It'd just be nice if they had a little bit longer distance. Um, <clears throat> I think... The, the Russians understand that, too, from that point of view. But uh, the Ukrainian units are adapting to it, and they're picking it up. Um, the biggest issue is they need some better – they need advising by Western people who have the uh, – I, I don't know the, – the job qualifier, the, the skill qualifier on it. So, like in the Army, we call it MOS. Um, <clears throat> so the units that are getting Westerners or foreigners into their units to train them on these things, they're picking it up a lot quicker and they're using them a lot more effective. Uh, like I said, when we were down in the Mikolaev Kyrgyzstan area, we trained some units on the Javelin. They went out and hit a tank the next, like, three days later on their operation. <clears throat> so I think, I think when you have a foreigner on ground, uh, it just increases their confidence and their ability to use it. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it helps having people on ground that can just direct them a little bit better on the training side of it. They are getting better at using them and employing them. And at the same time, Russia is getting better at doing the standoff on them. So it's just going to be a cat and mouse on that and on the adapting to using the javelin in ways that <clears throat> you can still be productive. But yeah, the, the javelin's definitely been a game changer. And what do Russians specifically do to, to counter the threats of that? Uh, what do you see? Like, what, their, what is their tactic to, to, to counter? The threat of Um, Well, if they're able to figure out what line has them, they'll usually try to stay out of range and just keep hammering the trench. Um, and then usually, tr they basically will try to keep their tanks further back. Uh, the BTRs, BMPs, it doesn't seem like they care to lose them as much. Um, but they're also probably not running a BTR, BMP fully loaded with people and your crew um, <clears throat> when they're doing the probing attacks or when they're just harassing fire. But if they know that there's javelins on the front line, they'll usually sit their tanks further back. All right. Um, we have uh, Battle Moose, then Junfan, then Trent, and then Constantine. Battle Moose. Uh, I'll, I'll get to my, my question in a second. But imagine being that BRT driver. You know, the poor sod that pulled the, the short straw and going, look it, you're, you're driving at the Ukrainians, buddy. <laughs> Don't worry, we got your back. That, that, that is no end of entertainment to me for some reason. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be the first vehicle. Yeah. Uh, so we had uh, we, we had an officer from the Ukrainian uh, Territorial Defense on here a couple a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was mentioning that uh, the the Russians are following their field manuals almost to a fault to to the letter and to the point that they were able to pinpoint headquarters just by the way their defensive trenches were laid out. 
Sorry if it keeps echoing. I can probably turn my mic on when you guys off or when you guys are talking. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I can't really comment on that because I haven't read their field manuals. Um, if the TDF guy, if it was an older gentleman who served during the Soviet time, he's pro and was in the military. He 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 probably knows what he's talking about. Uh, like I said, I've yet to look at their field manuals. The only thing I've ever looked at with the Russian stuff was an MRE, and to be honest, it wasn't the worst. It wasn't the best, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know on the field manual stuff and if they're following it or not. Roger that, and uh, good hunting, brother. All right, John Fan. Yeah, hi. First of all, just just total respect for you standing up and your your colleagues, and we appreciate that so much. Uh, my question is, I've read I read some I read some of your posts, and you've talked about you know the TDF and some of the experience there. I guess the question is, is how. Uh, you know, I know in the east, particularly in Donbass, you know, there's been significant attrition on both sides. And so we're now into the second and maybe third echelon of some troops. And as the TDF stands up and other reserves, uh, how, how is that going? And how do you see that going, given the, the kind of, uh, you know, the nature of those lines, the nature of that combat? Thank you. Yeah, so the TDF, oh, where to start with these guys? Um they're good soldiers. They're under-equipped. They're under-trained. Um, predominantly because, so they're pulling the TDF from so many areas that getting them trained before they go is getting pretty hard. Um, now, with that said, when when you say that they're in the second and third echelons, it's not really true. So basically, they're pulling TDF on the front line, but just because they're going east or north or south doesn't mean they're directly on the front. Um, <clears throat> Um, I'm trying to phrase it in a way. So, so they'll send them to these frontline areas, but a lot of times they won't be the ones on the front at the very beginning. Um, they might pull the other TDF that's local further into the front. Um, they are getting stuck on the front though. And, uh, like I said, the training isn't, is subpar. Their equipment's subpar. They're getting more stuff. It's just at, at the initial onset of the war and then following through, it hasn't been a high priority until recently. And the attrition rate is pretty high. Luckily, they're getting a lot more wounded than killed. Um, not not to say the wounds are superficial, but it's not going to knock them out of combat for, you know, a year. Usually it's maybe three months, two months. So luckily, they're, they're going to be able to regroup a lot of these people. But, uh, yeah, the TDF, they're good fighters. They just need to get the better equipment. They need to get the better training. I've actually held a meeting yesterday to try to get some more foreigners to start training and advising on the front with the TDF. Um, there's some risks that are associated with that too. Number one, the language barrier. And then number two, putting a foreigner into an inexperienced unit could probably get them killed a lot easier. I know there are volunteers that are asking to go do it. So um, I think you'll probably see the TDF quality pick up here shortly. It's just a matter of if they can fill enough advisors to start training them either when they're directly on the front or when they're moving towards the front. But they're good fighters. It's just they need the training. You know, you know their morale's high. They might not want to be in the front, but their morale's high. They're going to do it. So um, you're not going to see a line break and everyone flee without a command. So thank you. I think we have a question from Constantine. Yes, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I did not, um, uh, I, I had to drop down in the middle of when you joined. Uh, which uh, which uh, equipment do you work with when when hunting tanks is understood it's not Javelin? Uh, predominantly N-Laws and Javelins. Um, 
if we're tank hunting, basically we'll have one or two of each. Uh, just dep- I mean, it really depends. We typically bring enough to at least hit two things, uh, just because if we hit one and another one rolls up, or we take fire from another direction, we can uh, adjust fire on that. Uh, but basically, MOS and javelins are about the only thing we bring. Um, <clears throat> the collapsible RPGs really aren't effective at the distances that we're hitting them at. Like I said, we try to stay pretty far away from them because the closer you get, the more likelihood of getting spotted. Uh, so we try to, and, and and they know how to position their tanks at least a little bit. Uh, they might not be on the level that the Americans are or the West, but uh, you know, yeah, usually javelin or MLA. That's about the only thing that that we're using right now, at least for my guys. Sorry, I had a phone call. I know some units have like the collapsible RPG 27s or whatever they are, but yeah, we just don't bring those. Uh, it's pretty much pack light, move light, hit quick, get out. Okay, got it. Thank you. And then the second second question that I wanted to ask about the analogs. Uh, did you have, uh, since you were on February, but uh, fighting there starting from February, did you have any problems with those uh, with analogs related to the weather where the plastic would uh, would have problems because of the of the temperature and the batteries as well i heard that from uh two guys from uh, uh one of them is my friend i served with and he was complaining that uh, the batteries were were really big problem and uh he had some uh plastic chip off on the on the end loss when it was really cold yeah actually that's about spot on so you always carry an extra battery in your cargo pocket um and the, the same actually goes with the javelins. Uh, typically, when we pull a javelin from the brand-new crate, they're, the sealed crates they're in, we actually just throw the original batteries off, put two new ones on it, uh, predominantly because we've gone out, went to use a missile, batteries didn't work. Um, luckily, the N-Law, you can test the batteries before you go out, but we always still carry a spare. And whoever designed the N-Law, um, you'd have to look at the device of it, but you have your button that you push in, then you have your little flip switch. That toggle switch being made in plastic was a terrible design because they break all the time. Okay, we'll give that as feedback further onwards back to the rear. Trent, Thank you very much for answering. Much appreciate, Constantine. Stay with us. And yeah, a friend of the program, Trent Trelenko, is also with us. Trent. Hi, Ryan. Um, two related questions. Uh, how promiscuous are the Russians with using anti-personnel mines? And have you seen or heard of the Russians using artillery or vehicle-delivered scatterable mines? So I have yet to see the scatterable mines. Like you're talking from the, I'm assuming the cluster munitions from the missiles or however they're delivered. Um, I have not seen those. I think those are the sea loss or whatever they call them. Um, I haven't seen them. I haven't dealt with them. As far as the anti-personnel and those mines, they do use them. Um, a lot of times, though, what we've ran into is like booby traps in the villages and that sort of thing. But um, I, have yet, I haven't seen the scatterable mines personally. I know I've seen pictures of them, but I have yet to deal with any of them. Um, I probably won't even go near them, predominantly just because they're not something I want to even get near. Um, they're a little bit more threatening, I believe. I, I, don't, I actually haven't even looked in how they're built and how they're constructed just because I hope we don't ever have to deal with them. But they're built a little bit more sensitive, I believe, than the current landmines in use. So... Uh, but typically, a lot of the stuff we run into is booby traps, mainly like tripwires, um, grenades being shoved into shelving to where when you open it, it goes off. Uh, we've ran into a couple uh, RPG-27s, the disposable ones that were uh, booby-trapped. So 
But uh, landmines, I mean, they have been areas for obvious reasons to stop movement. Um, luckily, the Ukrainians have a lot of these marked out, um, whether it's from drone coverage, they're watching them put them out there, or however they're getting the intel on it. So I have not walked into a minefield on ac accident. Uh, there have been injuries from landmines, though. <clears throat> Thanks. Ryan, I've got a quick question. Or Trent, did we get your second question in? I, I forgot. No. Okay. Uh, he Ryan, answered both my questions. Thank you. Ryan, you were mentioning uh, BMPs or, or just vehicle targets. Um, it, can I ask you to back up one second to that? So uh, when you're engaging these and, and you talk about bringing, you know, potential to take on a second, um, are you guys looking, uh, are the Russians leaving some of their vehicles in onesies and twosies? Are you guys looking uh, for single vehicles by themselves? Does that happen frequently? You know, could you could you talk about uh, what, what maybe they're doing uh, that, that is inducive of, of you guys uh, more likely to pick a certain target? Uh, if, if you could speak to it. Yeah, so basically when we would do the tank hunting missions, we had gotten reports that there's vehicles here, vehicles there. Uh, and typically we'll try to figure out the best avenue approach, uh, go out there and then see what it is. Um, with like a, a recon guy, I'll go out, look it up. Um, but typically like we try to hit them when they're spaced out far enough to where we're not going to draw immediate fire from the second vehicle. Um, so they do keep them spaced out pretty far apart in general in case of artillery as well. So a lot of times you can hit one without the other one reacting right away. Um, but we always bring a spare just in case, like when you're going out, you know, in front of the front line to, so like where the trenches are is the front line, but to get to some of these areas, you have to go out further. So you don't want to be caught with your dick in your hand, um, when you're out in the middle, there shooting our javelin or something. So we usually bring two just in case. Thanks, Ryan. When in doubt, pack another. All righty, we have uh, Raver, then Constantine, and then Droid. Raver. Hey, so, sorry I, I, I missed so much of this conversation driving in the middle of nowhere, but now that I'm back, so I'm a former Army tanker, and I would really love your opinion on how the Russian three-tank platoon is working to provide mutual support to each other. How good are their optics? How good is their operational awareness or situational awareness? Um, are they easier to hunt at night versus day? I've got, I've just got a lot of questions for you. Um, <clears throat> we actually don't typically hunt them at night. They have some pretty, I wouldn't say decent thermals, but good enough to schwack us before we can get close the distance to use a javelin on them. Uh, especially even more with an unlock because it's even closer. You know, you have 800 meters. Um, and that reminds me, somebody asked about the other NLA issues. We had one issue with an NLA where we had the 100 meter standoff.